question as we start this morning. I actually want you to answer, okay? All right? So this isn't rhetorical. All right? It's a question I want to ask. What word or words, I can be flexible, what word would you use to define the days in which we're living right now? Pretend we're in school. Raise your hand. What word would you use to define the days that we're living in right now? And no one's allowed to say unprecedented. That was for Doug Lake. Anybody? Any takers? Gabby in the back. Frustrating or frustrated? Frustrated. Tumultuous. Two more. What's that? Pandemic. Dan. Uncertain. Nobody's wrong. What was that? I can't understand. I'm sorry. End times. Thank you. Thank you. The math. Absolutely. Difficulty at times. Yes. It's interesting. Nobody used the word hopeful. Nobody used the word peaceful. Nobody used the word joyful. Is there anyone here this morning that may be listening in that craves hope Peace and joy. That was rhetorical. Not just these surface level sentimental forms that we have, especially as we head into the holidays. I mean, we started a little bit early. We've already rocked the butter sugar cookies for Christmas and put on the music just to feel the sentimental holiday spirit. I'm not talking about that kind of hope, peace, and joy. I'm talking about a real, abiding, deep, life-transforming hope, peace, and joy for our days. Anybody crave that this morning? For those of us who are longing for such hope, peace, and joy, listen to what God's true, hopeful, peace-giving joy-giving word says to us today. We are in Matthew. Open up to Matthew chapter 9. We are reading verses 14 through 17. Matthew 9, 14 through 17. Then the disciples of John came to him saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst, 
and the wine is spilled, and the skins are destroyed. But the new wine is put into fresh wineskins, and so both are preserved. This is the word of God, and all God's people said, Amen, Amen. You ever heard of the phrase, living under a microscope before? Maybe living in a fishbowl. Maybe you've experienced that, where you feel like everyone's looking at you, they're watching you. Your life is under examination and critique, living under a microscope. That's what Jesus is doing now. He's, as you see, I don't know if you noticed it, as subtly it's, it's starting, and it will continue in increasing fashion. But Jesus is living under a microscope. People are watching Jesus. They're seeing what he's doing. They're listening to what he's saying, and they're observing, they're examining, and they're critiquing him. They hear what he's saying and all the implications, what he's saying and doing, and they are looking at him. They're trying actually to find fault. And so you see this earlier in uh, the healing of the paralytic, right? You see it implicitly in Matthew, but explicitly in Mark, Mark's gospel. They say this man is blaspheming in Matthew after they hear Jesus say, take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. In Mark, they say, why does this man speak like that? Who does this man think that he is? Then you see last week when Jeremy preached from the calling of Matthew, what do they ask? Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? See, they're asking questions as they examine Jesus' life and ministry, and they, they're trying to find a way to discredit him. They're not curious people looking to learn or to just get an understanding. No, they're critical. They're examining in such a way to discredit him. And so are we shocked to see verse 14 when the disciples of John come to him and they ask him a question as well. Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? I mean, the standard of holiness and righteousness and piety, the disciples of John the Baptist and the Pharisees were fasting regularly all the time. But you're not. You're not fasting. What's up with that, Jesus? Thought you were righteous, thought you were pious, what's going on? Well, to understand, obviously, let's just, what do you mean by fasting? Well, to be real simple, fasting just means you're not eating or drinking, right? Some form. You're not eating. You're abstaining from food, right, for a prolonged period of time. Like not eating between lunch and dinner, that's not fasting, right? Because we're supposed to not eat, really, between lunch and dinner even though the staff finds itself snacking at times around here, right? So that's not fasting. Fasting is like missing meals, prolonged period of time, not eating. The Jews would practice fasting often in connection with increased prayer, right? During times of mourning, loss, during moments and seasons of repentance, turning away from sin and turning to God. And they would fast in response to a particular danger or crisis that they were facing or experiencing, and they felt their need for God. That's when they would fast. But more pious and devout Jews actually just scheduled them. We're going to do them regularly, right? A couple times a week, maybe. 
we are going to do this because what happened over time is that the Jews, especially those like the disciples of John and the Pharisees, they would fast because they saw it as a meritorious religious practice. Let me say it more simply. If I fast, I'm good. If I don't fast, I'm not good. Tell me, we don't get caught up in thinking that way in relationship to Christ sometimes. If I do X, then I'm good. If I don't do X, then I must be bad. Are you following me? What happens when we live that way? If we live that way, we, we either A, feel great about what we're doing. We have a sense of self-righteousness. If we're not doing those things, we feel a, self, a sense of self-condemnation. So these disciples of John, these Pharisees, guess what? They have a, developed a sense of self-righteousness because they're doing what they think they're supposed to be doing in order to be good. And when they look at Jesus and his disciples, they're not doing what they're supposed to be doing in order to be good. Therefore, they must be what? Bad. It's interesting. This self-condemnation that they have, this self-righteousness, I'm sorry, this self-righteousness that they've conjured up and they're looking at Jesus and they ask him the question, why aren't you fasting like we are? Shouldn't you be doing this? If you're so holy and pious and good? So how will Jesus respond to such a question? Look at what he says. Like he often does. He answers a question with a what? Question. Jesus says to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? What in the world is Jesus talking about? What is he saying? Well, he's using the metaphor of a wedding to give an answer to the question. He said, why am I not fasting? Why is my disciples not fasting? Because the days in which we are living, he's speaking to them, Call for feasting and celebration, not for fasting and mourning. The days in which the disciples lived, the days in which the Pharisees and the disciples of John lived, guess what? They were days in which they should be feasting, not fasting. There should be celebrations, not mourning. In some ways, he's answering the question by saying, you don't understand the days in which you live, John's disciples. Pharisees, you don't understand the all-defining reality of the day in which you're living. You think we're out of step in life and practice, but actually, the days in which we live are, are likened to a wedding. And I'm here to tell you that the groom is here. The groom is here with the wedding guests. And in that moment, Jesus is saying to them something profoundly, uh, uh, well, pr- uh, giving a statement, a profound statement about his identity, who he is. He's looking at them through a metaphor, and he's saying, listen, I'm the groom. Now, what is the significance of that? What is the significance of that? He's saying, I'm the groom, I am here, this is changing everything. My presence in the world 
changes mourning into joy, just as promised in the scriptures that you read and hear. If you go back to Isaiah chapter 54, verses 4 through 5, man, I wish I had time to dig more into the context of that. But hundreds of years prior, the Lord spoke to Israel in days of despair and frustration. And he said this, For your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. And the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. The God of the whole earth, he is called. For the Lord has called you like a wife, deserted and grieved in spirit. Feeling like that today? Grieved and deserted? Like a wife of youth when she is cast off, says your God. For a brief moment I deserted you, but with great compassion I will gather you. In an overflowing anger for a moment I hid my face from you, but with everlasting love I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. He's saying this. That has come. My presence in the world is the historical fulfillment of those promises. I'm the groom, and I have come into the world as the maker, as the Lord, as the Redeemer, to claim my people. And that is a cause for rejoicing for the people of God. That is a cause not for fasting, but for feasting. Feasting like that takes place at a wedding. Isn't that an amazing thing to think about? When Jesus comes into the world as the groom, he comes to claim his people as his very own bride. What an awesome thing. In the midst of the the nation of Israel's struggles and sins and the oppression, Jesus comes as the fulfillment of every one of those promises to redeem, which means to set them free from their greatest oppressor, sin. And not only to redeem them out of sin, but to claim them and draw them into a covenant relationship with him. Like a groom does with his bride. Isn't that an amazing truth to think about today? That's what the incarnation, that's what Christ's presence in the world signified 2,000 years ago. That the groom has come to claim his bride. And that is his people. What an awesome thing. Therefore, this is a time to feast. This is a time to celebrate. It is not a time to fast. But you understand that John's disciples and the Pharisees, they don't know who Jesus is. And they surely don't trust him for who he is as they seek to discredit him. So I wonder this morning, do you know the identity of Jesus Christ as God, as the maker as the Redeemer, and as the husband of the people of God. Today, God's word reveals it to you. You understand it, you know it, and in this you see his faithfulness to his people, his faithfulness to his bride, his commitment and devotion to make a people that are caught up in sin and rebellion and to draw and claim them and bring them to himself to pour out his love 
and compassion on them in his work and person. What a truth to think about today. Christ in the world is a cause for great rejoicing. For he is the groom present to take his people as his own. And the wedding guests mourn and the bridegroom is risen. In the midst of our day, in the midst of COVID-19 and the coronavirus, which can feel like such an all-defining reality that shapes our whole perspective on life, in the midst of marriage difficulties that can be so defining and consuming, in the midst of financial stress, in the midst of health issues, in the midst of pain, depression, inner turmoil, in the midst of grieving loss, whether present or soon to be lost, in the midst of academic stress, and all that's going on with college life right now, in the midst of career questions, like when am I going to get a job? Am I going to lose my job? In the midst of all these things that can bring us down into despair, the Word of God comes to us today and provides hope, peace, and joy because Jesus has come into the world to take His bride because He's the groom. I want you to think about that right now. I want you to understand that Christ coming into the world radically transforms the way we live today. Haven't we seen that already in Matthew? Christ's presence over, and his power and authority over sickness and illness and leprosy and the demonic influences and forces of the day. Haven't we seen that Christ's presence in the world is a life-transforming, joy-giving reality? struggles and issues that we face really which can feel so all defining pale in comparison to the presence of Christ in the world and yet he goes on to say that the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from us what does he mean by that we understand as we read John that disciples were scared when they heard Jesus talking about heading to his death by crucifixion. In a little while longer, you'll be looking for me, but you can't find me. I'll be taken away. We understand that he did indeed die, die on a cross. He rose from the dead on the third day. Amen? But then, after a period of time of appearing, what happened? Acts chapter 1. The disciples saw him physically depart. And where is he? As my children would ask me often, you're telling me to believe in something that I can't see. Well, why can't I see him? Well, he's not here physically. He's in heaven, seated at the right hand of the Father. But someday he will come back, and you will see him. You see, in this moment, Jesus was present physically with the disciples. It was likened to a wedding, the kind of feasting and rejoicing that should take place 
But he understood that soon he would leave again. And then, what does he say? Because of his absence, at least physically, he's spiritually present by his spirit, but he's physically absent. Guess what he says? Then they will fast. And so, well, that's a confusing thing for us, right? You just told me that we're supposed to be feasting because of Christ's presence in the world. Now you're telling me that I should be fasting? And the answer is yes. It's a both-and reality that we face as the people of God in this world. That we live in the, in the tension of the already and not yet of the kingdom of God. Right? Jesus said in chapter 4, the kingdom of God is at hand. It is a reality that we still live in and understand, and it's an all-pervasive thing. But he also has not fully come. The presence of evil, the presence of struggling, of all the things that we've mentioned, already not yet. And so we, as the people of God, live in this already not yet tension. The kingdom has come, and yet it has not fully consummated and taken over every aspect of human existence. But someday it will. And that is the blessed hope of the Christian life. And so basically what I'm trying to tell you this morning is that as Christ's bride, we live in the world today, we're both people marked by, what, rejoicing and feasting, and also mourning and longing and fasting. That in the rhythm of our existence today, as the people of God, we're both celebrating and we're longing and mourning for something that we do not have. We're both feasters and fasters. That's the day in which we live. So let me ask you something. Are you living today in the joy of Christ? Even today, even in 2020, is the the incarnation, the coming of the kingdom of God, the presence of the king in the world 2,000 years ago, is that giving you and sustaining you in a very real, deep, and abiding joy? No matter what we face, right? Paul says, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say what? Rejoice. Let your reasonableness be made known to all. Why? The Lord is at hand. His presence. His second coming. We live in that tension. Are you living today, even if you lose everything in this life, nothing that this world throws at you, can take away your covenant fellowship with Christ by faith, are you still living in the joy of that? What I'm trying to say is, yes, we can, we can define our world as you have in that opening question, but we can still, because of the kingdom and because of the king who brought it, we can still say, these are joyful days because of him. Because of him. Second question is, are you longing for the return of Christ? I think we live in a tension here. Already, not yet. Feasting and fasting, rejoicing and mourning. That characterizes the Christian life. It shows that it's not a sentimental thing where we just uh, put positive energy to it. But it is truth and hope lived out in real human existence in the midst of very real struggles and sins. So I'm asking the question, are you longing for the return of Christ? Or are you satisfied fully with the days in which we're living? Are you saddened by the brokenness of the world? 
if you say no because I don't interact with it enough. Maybe you say yes because I don't even need to leave my house to deal with brokenness. It's in me and it's in us. Are you saddened by the brokenness of the world? Are you saddened by sin? Are you, are you saddened by the suffering of people? Does it cause you to mourn with those who mourn? Weep with those who weep? Does this reality lead you to fast? Or just fill your belly? To numb the effects of such sin. And to comfort you in the moment. This calls us to express our faith in Christ and a deeper hunger for Him and His transforming work in our lives. And I'll ask again, do you long to see Him as He is physically? Do you long to see Him? Do you long for His return? Jesus answers the question of why they don't fast. Because Christ's presence in the world means fasting doesn't fit. But he has more to say. And he turns to two metaphors. One regarding sewing garments and another about storing wine. Listen to what he says. He says, no one puts a, a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. For the patch tears away from the garment and a worse tear is made. I'm no sewer. Any sewers in the room? You guys are sewers? Here's the concept. Imagine a garment tearing. And if you have eight-year-old boys that play soccer in their school uniforms, you can imagine garments tearing. Right? Pants ripping. I mean, it's cool now, right? Like everybody, oh, they're ripped jeans. Everyone's got ripped jeans. Like, some of your worship leaders have got ripped jeans. Imagine a garment tearing and requiring a patch for it to be used in the future. Additional fabric is needed. You're going to make a patch, right? You prepare the old garment. Maybe you've cut out a square or a circle, whatever. And so you begin to weave the stitch connecting the new fabric to the old. You wear it. You wash it. And the new fabric shrinks. And guess what happens? tears again. That's what happens. The garment is in worse shape than it was before. Basically what Jesus is saying is this, is that when you expect us to fast according to your preconceived notions of piety, it's like trying to sew a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. You're trying to add me to something. That is old. You're trying to add something new to something that is old. It's not going to work. Then he goes on to say, neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst, and the wine is spilled, and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins, and so both are preserved. Again, that's how they stored wine. Animal skins, right? And they would store the wine in the, in the wineskins, uh, and they would put new wine in the new wineskins. If you ever put new wine into old wineskins, it would burst and then lose the wine during the fermentation process. So he's saying this, that expecting us to fast according to your preconceived notions of piety, guess what? It's like attempting to store new wine into an old wineskin. 
garment. It was like put, trying to fit something that's altogether new on something that is old. Here he's saying you're trying to put something that's fresh into something that is not. It's not going to work. And his response is revealing the error of their question and their perspective. The disciples of John and the Pharisees were approaching Jesus' teaching and ministry by trying to add him to their assumptions according to the old covenant. But what he's saying here is this. One cannot add or force fit Jesus into the patterns and forms of the old covenant. Just can't do it. You're trying to do something that you cannot do. I understand that you can't see it. You can't envision it, even though it's all over the Old Testament Scriptures. Even though I promised it. Yeah, I understand a few chapters ago, I told you that I'm not here to abolish the law and the prophets. That's not why I'm here. And he establishes a a continuity between the Old Covenant and the New. Between the Old Covenant and who he is. There is a connection. It is one story of redemption. One foreshadows that which he fulfills. He was emphasizing that in Matthew 5. But here he's emphasizing the discontinuity. That this is something altogether new that I'm doing. That my presence begins. My kingdom and my covenant cannot be added or force-fitted into the structures and forms in the Old Covenant. And I'm telling you right now, that is wonderful news for them, and it is wonderful news for us. That what Christ is doing, who He is, and the work that He's doing, according to the kingdom that He is establishing, according to the covenant that He is providing, it's not added on. It's not force-fitted into. No, it is something fresh and it is something new, just as it was promised. Jeremiah 31 says, Behold, the days are coming. There it is again. How do we define the days? Jeremiah, the weeping prophet in the midst of despair, what does he promise? Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband. What an amazing thing to see the connection there. Though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. And I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. What an amazing thing to hear. They will know me, all of them, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and remember their sins no more. So you can't, look at he's doing a new thing. He's doing a new work. That the old covenant foreshadowed and pointed to. That Christ is fulfilling that covenant. And guess what he's doing? He's bringing a new covenant for the people of God. That does what the old covenant was unable to do. Save us from our sins. Bring us redemption. 
set us free, restore us and reconcile us back to God so that we know him. So the law is written on our hearts. Ezekiel talks about the spirit coming to indwell us, live within us, to make us new creatures, to give us new hearts. The old covenant could not do that. But what Jesus is doing is all sufficient and secured because of who he is. He's the groom. He's the groom. He's come to claim and take his people as as his own. He's come to bring the new covenant and apply all the blessings of that covenant to his people. That is a joy-giving, peace-giving, hope-giving reality. And that is an all-defining thing for us as the people of God. Christ's presence in the world, Christ's work on the cross, Christ's second coming. You put all of this together and you realize that Jesus Christ is the all-defining reality of everything in human existence and uh, uh, history. It's Christ. He's bringing about such a promise and blessing for his people in a new kingdom according to a new covenant which wipes away and cleanses us from our sin and, and cleanses us from all unrighteousness. Again, you, you're interacting with so many temporal things that are coming at you so fast. I feel the stress of that with you. I feel the uncertainty that you feel. I'm with you in that. But I was so encouraged as I came to this text that was on the surface a little bit hard to interact with and I realized what Matthew is recording for us and what Jesus is telling us is that me, I'm the all-defining reality for every single day for the people of God. My life, my hope, my love, my compassion, my redemption, my person, my finished work, my second coming, everything about me defines the reality for my people. They are mine. I've claimed them as my own. I have saved them. They have every reason in this life to be filled with hope, joy, love, and expectation. Isn't that an amazing thing to think about today? Not sentimental. Very much, very much real and abiding. Something that defines existence. I mean, I don't know what defines you. Maybe maybe you've tried to look at Jesus and say, yeah, I'm going to add him to my life and my preconceived notions of what's important. And why I'm alive. I'm going to add him to it. Maybe I'm going to try to force fit him into some plan. Some some future. That I've contrived in my own mind. Some system of ethics. That you've come up with. Or maybe heard from your parents. Or even culture. You're going to add him and fit Jesus into that. Jesus just makes it a little more nicer for you. I don't know. But what I'm here to tell you today is that Jesus is the all-defining reality. Don't add him. Don't force-fit him into anything other than what he has given and revealed. His kingdom, his covenant, and the community of faith that he has taken as his own. That's what he's doing. What an awesome thing. What an awesome thing. And so the call on each of us today, once again, is to know Jesus. 
have a more robust understanding of the nature of who he is. Know Jesus. And because you know him more, trust him to a greater degree. Trust him with your life. Trust him with your salvation. Trust him with everything that you face. Trust Jesus. See his presence in the world as a redefining reality that is radically transforming our experience in it, that it gives us joy, peace, because of Christ. Steer clear of adding Jesus, force-fitting him into our own understanding of the world and reality. And here's the the wonderful thing, that because we know Jesus and trust Jesus by faith, we are now citizens of his kingdom. And as citizens of the kingdom, we are the recipients of every single one of the new covenant blessings. Salvation, redemption, forgiveness of sins. So by faith, receive. Receive today. Receive. If I could just wrap this whole thing up into one statement, I would say this. I would say the the people of God, as those who know and trust Jesus by faith, the people of God live in the joy and hope of days that are defined by Jesus Christ. That's our life. These days in which we live are days that are defined by Jesus Christ, by the nature of who he is. It can be defined by nothing or no one else. I hope that gives you hope and assurance and peace and joy this morning. If it doesn't, I have nothing better to offer you today. The scriptures point to nothing else, no one else, but to Jesus Christ. And it is the people of God, us here today, who know and trust Jesus by faith. The people of God are living in the joy and the hope of days that are defined by Christ. His kingdom and his covenant. The all-defining reality for us. So no matter what other people define it with, no matter how real and fair and appropriate the words may be, never have those words detached from Jesus, don't approach any aspect of your life, any arena, any relationship, any decision, any uh, future goal. Don't approach anything without a reference to Jesus. Don't think you, can, you, you need to walk through suffering and difficulty and turmoil without reference to Jesus and his blessings. The people of God were living in days defined by Jesus. still waiting for you in God's kingdom. And that day will come. Don't be long. Don't be long. Stay faithful. Stay faithful. Keep trusting. Grow in your knowledge. Grow in your trust. Hear these promises. Memorize them. Apply them. Live them. Rest in them. Remain faithful. 
were waiting for days defined by Jesus and they would come. Revelation tells us this. Revelation 19, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And then he said to me, These are the true words of God. Don't be long. We will sit with our Savior at his table at the wedding banquet of the Lamb. And we will rejoice and we will feast. And there will be no more cause for fasting, mourning, crisis be gone. Amen? Those are days that will continue to be defined by Jesus. Days we long for and wait for. So feast and fast, but all understanding that every day is defined by Jesus. Amen? Let's pray. Spirit of God, we pray that each person here, wherever they are, their relationship to you, that the Spirit of God would apply the truth of your word to their hearts, that the Spirit would draw them, the Spirit would assure them that the hope and the peace and the joy that they long for in the midst of very difficult days, that they would turn and trust in Christ. Lord, continue to protect us, continue to give us hope, continue to sustain us. May we be a witness to the world. People say, why so much joy in the midst of turmoil? Because of Jesus. May we be a light that shines in a dark world. May we give hope in the midst of despair. And may we be faithful to proclaim the kingdom of Jesus, the covenant of Jesus, the person, the work, the love, the compassion, the redemption of Jesus Christ, our Lord. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.